Hi, and welcome to this episode of The VFX Show. As we said a couple of episodes ago, we have some special stuff coming up. And this week on the show, we are reviewing Monsters of Men, but we're doing it in a rather different way because instead of just reviewing the show as we normally do, we actually have the film's uh, writer and director, Mark Toyer, with us uh, and one of the film's main stars, Jason Diamond. <laughs> How are you, Jason? I'm great. Uh, I, I believe you're stretching my uh, credit a little a little far, but I'll take it. Mark, I have to tell you a funny story. Uh, when I first watched the film, I must have glanced at my phone while the close-up was on Jason's face. So I saw the assassin um, doing the killing. I just didn't realize it was Jason. And he said, yeah, I was in it on camera. And I was like, what? And so I had to go back and rewatch it. I was like, how did I not see that hooded figure, that hooded Academy Award role um, yeah. cameo? Mark, thanks so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Anytime. So let's establish where everyone is. So I'm obviously in Sydney, and Jason, I presume you're in New York. I am in my house in New York City, Queens, yeah. And Mark, I saw you posting photographs of snow-covered New York, but it looks like you're at your house. Where are you? I don't, that was just some picky, uh, uh, someone posted on one of our groups, and I just liked it so much, I just posted it. But uh, I'm in Brisbane. So, yeah, I'm not going to be cold, cold on New York. And uh, in fact, that was the sort of hub for where you were making the film, wasn't it? Though you were shooting up in Asia. Is that right? Uh, well, there was one section of the, um, uh, there was one section of the uh, movie that we did shoot in New York. Yes, that was uh, for Foster, who was the robots, the boss of the robot company. It was sort of set, in, that was his setting actually, just in a, uh, an apartment in New York. So we normally start reviewing the show by discussing the plot before we get to the visual effects. And so mm -hmm. I guess here we've got a beautiful opportunity to kind of uh, probe you as to how it went. And I guess the thing that we're always unsure about, and maybe you can address, is just like how clear was that thread that we saw on screen when it was at final draft? Did the final draft change a lot during the shooting and editing, or did you get like pretty much a, a, a narrative line that you wanted all the way through between those stages? Uh, no, it stayed intact. We shot everything. The movie, the script, however, was quite long. Uh, it was 167 pages, and we all know that that's, you know, a, a, an epic that should never be made and sold. Uh, <laughs> but because it was a self-funded extravaganza, I just decided to do the whole thing anyway and then pick the eyes out of it, in a sense, in the edit suite. So... We didn't really lose that much because from a action perspective, one page of dialogue, which technically is a minute of screen time, that's, that's how people look at uh, screenplays, like if they're 90 pages or 100 pages, it's usually equates to 100 minutes, right? Uh, so uh, I just know just from my the way I wanted to shoot this, and it was, a lot, it was quite a high action movie for a good portion of it once it got going, uh, that one page of dot. One page of dialogue could technically turn into um, uh, 10 seconds of screen time. So it was quite easy to compress most of our story down. So I did delete a few scenes, which I thought oh, was a little bit repetitive, but we did stick to the, stick to the uh, script quite well. And I let the actors have a tiny little bit of ad-lib, but only in the sense of instead of saying air conditioning, they would say AC, you know, just things like that. So I let actors uh, be a little bit more fluent with their natural dialogue. Jason, when did you first hear about the project? Um, 
I mean, uh, being good friends with Mark, you know, we talk quite often and I think he mentioned the project when he was uh, sort of kicking it around. And so I, I was lucky enough to follow it as he was um, sort of batting it around, putting it together, and then eventually going to shoot it. Uh, and then uh, came here to New York and uh, and gave me a choice role. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and we, uh, I, I borrowed an airsoft uh, replica gun from our friend Stu uh mashwitz because i know he's the airsoft guy i was just like texting him like i need a gun send me a gun <laughs> uh, and uh and yeah i mean it was it was super fun i don't i didn't know who mike goldman was before i killed him but uh seemingly he deserves it from what i understand yeah totally <laughs> yeah and uh so mike when you were writing it like it was from the outset it going to be kind of a robotic, um, heavy VFX? Like that was, you, you said action, but like it's more than just action, right? It's uh, It's got these amazing robots. Was that something that appealed to you right out of the gate? And, and if it did, did you immediately think, hang on a second, this is going to make life hard VFX-wise? Uh, no, because when I originally wrote it, I just had in mind I'll do the quiet place type thing, you know, where the robots were more, more um, um, suggested rather than shown. And then, see, now I'm, I'm old enough to refer to that as the Jaws technique where you don't see the shark, right? But yeah, obviously I need right. to update okay. my uh, film reference. Yeah, so no, 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 I'm, I'm quite place is good. Good, good, yeah. Yeah, so what I was, I just thought, well, when I originally budgeted the film, um, I thought, well, I, I'll probably see the robot for, you know, maybe 10, 15 times at best, or this group of robots, and then we'll um, uh, just try and scare the pants off people. Uh, but that I literally threw that out the window day one when I saw the, this guy in a blue suit walking through the bush, you know, I went, hello, hang on. If that was a real robot, that'd be pretty cool. You know, a, an actual robot walking around in the jungle. Uh, and I thought, this, uh, screw it. So literally on day one or day two, I changed my mind. I threw the, that rule book out the window and I went, bring this robot out. Let's get them out there. Let's get the whole three of them out there. Let's do this properly. So instead of shooting it in a scary, suggestive way, let's have them in the forefront and make them full-blown characters, So, um, which which made for a far better film but a far more expensive film, um, and that's where the, the post dialed up. Uh, you know, shooting it didn't cost any more. <coughs> Pardon me. Shooting didn't cost any more, but the, from a post perspective, yeah, that just um, that's when the wife started, uh, you know, lecturing me behind closed doors. But the reality is the movie's ten times better for it. Your wife was an editor, a uh, producer as well, right? So, yeah, she I'm had the, she had a good I, reason to be uh, be <laughs> bringing that up. It wasn't just like, <laughs> oh, look, hey, you, um, yeah, because I sort of promised X amount, and then it went, it sort of doubled. But you know, I, it, it doesn't matter. It was fine. <laughs> Have you disclosed how much you did the film for? Yeah, yeah, it it all up in real hard money. It cost us about one point six million dollars. Yeah. So. Jason, I think you'd agree with me. Like 1.6 seems like a ridiculously low amount of money for the production quality that Mark managed to pull off. Oh, easily. I mean, um, without, you know, heaping praise on a, on a friend just because he's my friend. Uh, we've, you know, having seen, <clears throat> again, having seen the development of the 
of you know the CG over the time. It'll, you know, Mark would send me comps or you know robot stuff, not for notes, just as a friend sharing. And it was great to see them come to life. I was, uh, it was, I mean, I personally, uh, you know, when you when you watch a friend's movie, it's like going to see your friend's band. You know what I mean? Like, like you're obligated to do it, but. There's this. There's a moment where you're like, okay, when, where does the scale tip to? I re- I actually like it versus, oh no, it, it's great, you, great job, you know, kind of <laughs> thing. And you know, I mean, uh, not, you know, I, I had no doubts that it was going to be good, but, but you know, being able to follow the process, you know, like you would any want to do for any other movie you were interested in, it was, it was really great to see the you know, all the behind the scenes stuff as it was happening. Um, and so seeing the robots as they were developing and knowing that they were going to be so prevalent, it was really like, I was stoked to see them come through. And then when I saw the movie, like, I think Mark, I think the first thing I said to you was like, it's like a $50 million movie, like easy. Right. Like just from a, from to your point, uh, Mike about the, the, I mean, the robots are so well done. They're so they sit in so nicely, and the comps are so good, and the animation's good that that it totally takes it to a completely other budget level. You wouldn't say that's an indie movie. It's not like you know, uh, even even uh, what's it called? Um, uh, I forget. What's the Mel Gibson um, Inca movie? Um, Inca. Oh. Uh, 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 my brain is fried right I know now. what you mean. Yeah, the... Uh, the, uh, the something one... of the Christ? Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. no, 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 not Passion of the Christ. The the one he did in the Amazon. Yeah. I can't uh, remember the name of it. But, we, yeah. uh, but, but <laughs> anyway, <laughs> even that movie, even that movie was, had, you know, reserved set pieces, right? Like it had the one big CG section with the ziggurat and whatever, and the rest was in the woods. Like it was tempered towards a budget. Whereas that's what you would expect for what Mark said he was originally going to do based on the budget was to tease it, have a couple key, you know, set piece moments where you'd really see the robots. And then that's, that's what you'd get. And so to go the full biscuit and go all the way out and have the robots be full daylight the whole time is not what you would expect from a movie for that budget. Apocalypto. Is that the one that you meant? Apocalypto. Yep. 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 So, Mark, was there's obviously people have pointed to some other films that might have been perhaps an inspiration and certainly um, sort of helpful for for thinking. Um, Chappie being one of them. And uh, was, was there one of those films that you kind of looked at and thought, you know, I can uh, draw on some inspiration there? Uh, from the story perspective, no. Um, yeah, from the but, design but, but it's, it's, meant, it, yeah. Oh, from a design perspective, no. I think, you know, when you're doing a robot, it's got two arms and two legs. I mean, you, you know, people go, oh, it's, you know, Elysium, oh, it's, you know, Chappie, oh, it's this, this, that. But at the end of the day, it's a robot with four legs, right? So, oh, with, sorry, with two arms and two legs and a head. So, the you know, the, the robots, from a design perspective, I tried to keep it away from Chappie, even though it's got two arms and two legs. Um like if you put them side by side, you can't see any similarities at all. Um, there's with Elysium, the Elysium robots. There's a couple of hydraulics in the in the stomach section, which is similar, but I think that's just logical to run a hydraulic system like that in the stomach. So it's not like we put up an Elysium model and go, let's mimic that. Uh, we we didn't at all. We just I tried to keep the other models away from the designer, 
um, and okay, let, let's think a little bit more our own, you know, right, the way things move. And there was a lot of, you know, in those first, I went through actually three designers to get that one right, uh, the design right, uh, because I'm from an engineering, you know, like steelworking type background where I worked with hydraulics and robotics in my previous life, I should say, uh, you know, life before filmmaking. And uh, I knew a lot about hydraulic systems, you know, and joints and, and and pneumatics and all that sort of stuff. So I thought, well, if I get if I if we do design a robot, I want to make sure it's actually logical and it uh, and would really work in the real world. And even though we did cheat a little bit on a few things, because you know a robot's arm can't do that. You know, like I'm sorry, can't really reach around and touch his own shoulder blade because there's so much metal and clashing in the way, right? Uh, so we so we started designing the robot's arms to where the the forearm or the bicep, oh, sorry, the forearm would fit into the bicep and the calf muscle, if it, you know, the calf would fit into the back of the leg. So we just made sure the compression of this robot was designed in the sense where it could reach around and touch things because we were tracking a, a human actor and the last thing I wanted to see is a bicep um, clashing or from a 3D perspective. Like an intersection. Yeah, an intersection. Intersection, into, into yeah. A, into a hard part I did, of the of I its did chest. think that if you wanted to design the robots so they could service their own um, you know AI units that they just have the head pivot so you'd you know have their head turn around 180 degrees and they <laughs> you know because there's no reason why they had to be constrained but but from a filmmaking point of view you're obviously picking up off the actor in the the actual on-set performance and of course um, that makes like like perfect sense I was gonna say one of the other films that struck me it might have been you know, in the back of your mind, again, not from a story point of view, is uh, District 9, because District 9 had sort of a similar kind of, uh, you know, two-arm, two-leg sort of digital character, and it was sort of a little bit more, wasn't completely, but it was a bit more indie, and it was certainly a huge, you know, hit and uh, interesting film. That film yeah. get on your radar? Oh, yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, I think what I liked about that film was the, the more the realism that was more implemented into that. And uh, see, I, I like films that look not. I, I didn't like the doco side of, of of District Nine, but I liked it once it turned into a movie. That that's when I really liked it. Uh, and and the, you know that it, things become a little bit more believable. And that's and that's why I didn't really pull back in our film. I just go, you know, in, in war, <laughs> there's not, nothing sacred in war, right? Um, you run, people die, uh, shit happens. You know what I mean? But you know, I just wanted to make sure we didn't fall in that trap of getting too Hollywood uh, with it because that's the part I really hate about movies is you go, oh, this is a really cool movie, and they go, oh, my goodness, cliche Hollywood move right there, you know what I mean? And now I'm distracted by by candy. But also but also in your case, what you would, what you would never do on a larger scale film for multiple reasons is you shot, you know, five cameras uh, at once. For, for budgetary purposes, which makes sense for coverage, but from a visual effects standpoint, isn't usually what's you know isn't usually what you do. So you're you're capturing multiple. A you you have witness cameras sometimes you know inadvertently, but you also have you know the ability to do an actual sort of covered scene cut with really good continuity and and capture the visual effects all at once with your with your, you know, guy in a suit. Mm. Well, that, yeah, that, that's right. I, well, most of the time it was four cameras. We did have a fifth that we drag it now and then. 
I mean, if it, right. it, in hindsight, I wish I shot a thing of seven cameras, you know what I mean? Because some, <laughs> especially in those action scenes, you know, you can really stress out an act, or the actors if you do it too many times, right? Especially from an emotional perspective. So shooting multiple cameras is fantastic for an actor to be more a thespian actor than a, than a come back and do it 20 times um, type. But um, it's hard to know, dress the camera. It's hard to dress something to camera when you've got seven cameras or at least four cameras. Um, and you just paint, paint I, them out. <laughs> well, I was about to say, because normally the solution to that yeah. would, yeah, because I was going to say that that's exactly what you would do on a big production. And yeah. obviously you fell back on that. You, you couldn't have been doing too much. We'll just fix it in post because you would have been piling it on yourself. Uh, look, we did, but look, the two things that are important to me is the camera angle. Um, and the or, or performance first, obviously. Yeah, sure. Know, that's number one. But from from a shooting perspective, you know, four cameras is is completely doable. You know, if you're shooting seven on on it, you're gonna have to start painting other people out, and that's what we did as well. Like, there was quite a few shots there where there was you know there was a guy literally, and you know the the C cam guy was standing in the forest with his two hundred mil right in the middle of my shot. You know, but I didn't care. I just thought, well. I'm not going to paint that guy out. Some dude in India or Bangladesh or Vietnam or in- Indonesia is going to do that for me for seventeen dollars. You know what I mean? Um, so it's not it's not like it's a big fix because I go well. What's seventeen dollars compared to our day running long, which could run out to thousands of dollars? So especially from an audio perspective, you know, ADR cost a fortune if you want to get actors back into a studio to replicate that scene or do audio. So. The sound guy, I would literally tell him, uh, whenever you feel that this is an ADR moment and it's not a big emotional scene, you know what I mean? I want you can you can yell out to me, just yell it out, ADR. I just want you to just say that word and I'll shut the shit down and we'll fix it, you know what I mean? Because it's because it's so much easier to fix it now than later. So, so if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that if on set the audio guy was thinking to himself, this isn't going to work, I'm going to have to do it in ADR, he'd flag it to you and you'd say, okay, what's the problem? We'll fix it. So you could record it live as opposed yeah, so, to yeah. ADR. So what we did, right. I just said, just shut the boom in there. So we might, we had up to 12 to 15 mics going at any one time. So everyone was lapelled, everyone had boom. <clears throat> you know, there was, there was mics everywhere. So we were never get, not going to be short of good dialogue. But the problem is, you know, if the winds are blowing and there's birds chirping, there's motorbike shoots past through the bush in Cambodia, or someone turns on a generator or stuff like that, things that we can get out, we'll, we'll like we'll shut it down quite quickly, fix it. But most times, the mics, I just said, just push the mics in there. So in pushing a boom mic into a shot, that's where all the operators go, hey, whoa, whoa, there's a fucking boom in my shot, right? <laughs> so I had to train these guys, which are literally, you know, I they don't want to see a boom in their shot. So they start trying to frame out that bloody boom. And I go, no, 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 don't change the framing because the framing's perfect. I'll paint out that mic. And we did. We literally painted out, I think, about 70 mics that were dropping into our shots in the final locked edit. Uh, but that to get paint to paint out all those mics only cost me $2,600 with a company from Indonesia. And they just painted all the mics. So I just sent them all the shots. I sent them all back. We just dropped them back in. But that's a hell of a lot cheaper than getting a whole bunch of actors in, you know, and yeah. flying them into a mm-hmm. studio or or doing live links with another studio and it's just, and then re trying to get them into that, you know, that performance. 
So, you know, I was not worried about a camera being in shot. I was not worried about a mic being in shot because cleanup work is something we do day in, day out, and it's very affordable. This day and age, there are companies that are just tooled up for it, you know. Yeah, I mean, I should say for those listening, and there is an article on FX Guide if you want a bit more background on this, but um, Mark, Jason, I think you can jump in here and help me. Mark is a very accomplished commercials director. You've had an enormous amount of experience, Mark, in doing stuff. This isn't like... Even though this is your first major feature film, it's not as if, I mean, I've been watching your work for like, I'm going to say 20 years. Fair while, right? Like um, <laughs> from the early uh, Yamaha bike uh, commercials that were winning awards that I was on the uh, judging panel of. Um, you've been doing outrageously good work for a long time. So that, like, like comfort with the material was obviously evident. But Jason, jump in here. Like, didn't you feel like when you were watching it, there was almost points where I was like, knowing what the budget is, I kind of... I'm just desperate to know how this shot got pulled off. Because, like, with a big budget, you just go, well, they obviously hired a big plane. And here I'm thinking, is that a yeah. CG plane? <laughs> yeah, well, even when Mark came to, you know, having, uh, you know, again, uh, having known Mark uh, a long time and and having hosted him here in New York, you know, and helped out on a couple shoots, you know, that he's been doing and knowing all the helicopter stuff he does again, to your point, uh, as, as an, uh, accomplished filmmaker making a feature for the first time, as I would think of myself too, in, in, in a certain sense is instead of making your first feature at 24, when you're, when you're, which has its benefits as well, making your first feature well past your age of 24 <laughs> has a lot of paddle has a lot of benefits too because you're to your point you're stepping onto the set with a wealth of knowledge that helps you to say okay i can paint that out i can do this i've done all of these little tiny things before in 30 second two minute pieces what have you and i know i can apply that to a to a larger feature with you know to mark's example which is the easier expense, which is the easier effort, uh, for, for maximizing the quality on set. And, and so, yes, I think there was a lot of moments where you were like, okay, this is a, this is a really big, I mean, the, 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 the robot climbing the vine, right? Yep. It, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, that's a, that's pretty tricky you would you would second guess that in prep if you were in indie you'd be like i don't know can we like maybe we should just have them walk by camera that's easier like we're going to do all this st you know stuff with the vine and the this and the that but it's those it's the shots that are exactly the shots that you know are hard are the ones that give you the higher production value you know what i mean cuz the audience watches it and goes this this is complex even if they're not filmmakers there's a visual language to it that says this is complex. It must be expensive, right? Subconsciously. Uh, after, after the audiences for years being trained, at least for the last 20 years or more on 20 Marvel movies or whatever it was, you know, in the first half of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that's quite a film school uh, for people to learn about visual effects and storytelling from a big Hollywood budget standpoint, right? Uh, even if they're not filmmakers, they're just learning, they're being taught about how, you know, to make, you know, planets, universes, battles, what have you. 
though unlike the Marvel Universe, you got, how could I put this, fairly crunchy with some of the brain-crushing, face-stomping, <laughs> blood-spurting, face-ripping-off yeah. sequences. This was uh, not your, your, your daddy's uh, uh, Disney film in some respects. Yeah. Did, you, did you have have stuff that you wanted to do that you didn't or did you do stuff right to the limit of what you wanted to do, Mark? Um, yeah, because I had no executives up my bum or, you know, or producers that were saying water it down, water it down, water it down, I could break the rules, right? So I'm watching the show at the moment called The Boys on, uh, I think it's on HBO or something like that. Amazon. Amazon. It's yeah, Amazon. Amazon. Yep. And a good thing about uh, uh, that show is they just thought, fuck it, you know, they just, they're like, they're using the C U and T word, they're, they're killing babies, they're doing whatever, you know, they're doing anything and everything. Just, there's no rules. And that's, I think, another reason why that show is so successful because it's ruleless. And, and I thought, well, you know, this is my first film, I don't have anyone up my ass, I don't have, you know, frightened weak, scared, soft uh, people around me telling me uh, to pull things back, you know what I mean? Or that's going to be too expensive. For, you know, you know the, typ the typical game that would probably happen on any other movie, you know, when there's a lot of a lot of someone else's money involved. They, they, it, it, things become very rule book very quickly, right? Uh, so, yeah, turning those rules off was very uh, refreshing for me too. And I think that's what made our movies quite striking. You know, people watch it and they go, and shit happens. Like you said, there's people getting killed that shouldn't be getting killed. And, and I, I, you know, we've done our test audience viewing and they, everyone goes, oh, whoa, whoa, you just did that? And then and then I, you know, in doing the movie as well, I thought, well, I'm going to have to make as very much a commercial movie as possible. So, I'm going, well, let's do a... Um, you know, let's let's break the rules and uh, and let's let's put some horror in there. It's because it's not a horror movie, bony stretch. You know, it's literally an action sci-fi movie. But let's for the horror fans, let's drop some horror in there. You know, the the face being ripped off by the robot as he tries mm -hmm. to realize who he is. The you know ripping hearts out and brains and all that because he's trying to understand what makes this thing tick. Because he's got fingers, he's got legs, he's got arms and legs, but this thing is the same, but it's made from something else. So this robot's study of the of the human anatomy was quite gruesome, right, in a sense. Um, but, you know, and the way they killed some of them, they didn't want to waste a bullet, so they crushed people and stuff like that. So, yeah, I just thought, stuff it. I, I'm not going to live by the rule book. I'm just going, it's my first film. I can take a hit financially if I want. Um, it's going to... Um, Let's just do it and and put a bit of a stamp out there and just go. It's it's the only way to be noticed, I think. So unless I was once again distracted by something that pulled my attention, there seemed to be <laughs> one pull in that in that I was wondering if you'd pulled it or you'd never shot it. But when the guy's sitting at the tree and uh, and one of the uh, the BA units comes up behind him, he mm. kills him with a hand around the face from the back of the tree. But yeah. you don't see that death, um, oh, which I was like, <laughs> did that get cut? Because it seemed like that was like an obvious place that I was going to have to look away again and and uh, hide under a cushion. Yeah, look, I, I, I didn't want to do the whole pressure on the head and watch the head just cave in like a watermelon, right? <laughs> but the way we set it all up on, on the day, it just didn't. 
it wasn't as cool as I hoped because I don't think we went there with the right pieces or the right bits and pieces, and it just and we, and we, not enough watermelon. Yeah, we didn't have enough watermelon, so uh, it just it just you know when things just don't look right, it just go. You know what? If if I use this little trick, it's not going to be right. People are going to question me on it. Fuck it, let's just get rid of it. And, yeah, you know, it's better I, to I, edit it out than have a, a bad shot. Yeah, I just didn't want it to be a bad shot. And you know that that was okay. We did. You know the movie didn't suffer because we didn't do it. No. You know it was because the fear of him about to get squashed was enough. But I would have loved to have had that that little <laughs> that little squish moment where it, it did jam. Uh, but you know that's only because we. I think we weren't prepared for that shot properly so there's, there's one other thing you know, i want to ask you about before i want to, i'm really keen to get jason to ask you about some of the cinematography but before i do that i just want to ask you one other thing i thought it was really interesting when i was watching some of the making of stuff how you obviously went on location and used both the location and the natural lighting which we'll get to next but in terms of the locations because they weren't sets because you didn't have a big art department moving you know trees and moving like you know fake rocks and all that kind of stuff I'm curious how you did the blocking because it seems to me you would have had to have been incredibly responsive to what was there. Yet a lot of the plot points seem to center around geography, you know, in and out of this window, in and out of this kind of thing. Did you did you do a recce scout somehow map it all out and then go back and shoot it, or was it like, look, I I know I've been to that location, I know we'll be able to do it, but I'm not going to be able to work it out until the morning of that that particular sequence like for example they're running through stone ruins and that's a very specific thing and it's a very actual stone ruin from the making of footage it's not like you had art department sort of building you a, a stone ruin on a soundstage so and yet the options like the it's very plot specific that he hides here that he you know gets out of the way here that he dodges here how did that how did that blocking work uh i think this is where my ad came that my years doing TV ads, you've got to be very fast with your with the because the clients change their minds constantly on set, right? So just that 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 twenty years of doing TV commercials, you you do have to be responsive uh, on the day and make things up on the day. Uh, but you're right, yeah, I I did both. Uh, a lot of locations I knew, you know, like walking through caves, running over rocks, and all that. When we did our location recce,s I just knew that. Five people who are going to hide there behind that rock. We're going to do this, and they're going to jump out of this window, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so I did have a, a quite a good plan when we did our tech recce, and when we go to the shoot, I already blocked it out in my head. I knew exactly where everyone was going to be placed, and we just got the actors in the place, and we did it. Uh, but there were some um, that we didn't plan well, which was the temple, for instance. We were going to be shooting in Angkor Wat, and um, all of a sudden. You know, the, the whole town all of a sudden knew that we were doing a movie there and they thought Big Hollywood was in town. So they the little $2,000 location fee turned to $20,000 overnight. Um, so I had to then think of another option of looking uh, looking for another location. So, um, you know, we, the, the local location guy uh, there, would he went out and found us another temple. And because the good thing about that area, this temple's lying dormant untouched, not even looked at by tourists, scattered all through the jungle there. There's the mountains of them. Um, so, yeah, we literally jumped on these little tractors and we went through the rice paddy fields and floods and we ended up in this little temple for a few days, uh, So it was, which was actually uh, annoying because it literally knocked us around for a day of shooting. Because so I hate 
going over time or over budget. Well, I did anyway when I went robots. But um, but just that alone, having to find another location in the last minute, then we had to improvise like what you were saying. I had to get there and go, all right, I've got this, this whole screenplay now that says he's got to jump over this staircase and down there. And this but new temple didn't have a staircase, but it had a mountain of rocks that were crumbling from one of the temples collapsing, you know. So we just, we just converted the, the, some of the scenes around. And it's like that kid that was about to sort of shoot himself in the cave. Like that was an improvised scene as well. Like we, I went, I found this little box canyon type rock formation. I went, wow, if, you know, if a robot really did follow you in there, what would you do? Knowing that you can't fight this thing, you're never going to escape. Are you going to sit there and get your arms and legs ripped off and, and your head smashed or whatever, or what would you do? So, and I said that to the actor and he says, oh, fuck, I'll probably bloody shoot myself. But it's probably an easier way of going than getting my head ripped off, right? And I said, well, that's what we're going to do. So that was an improv scene, uh, which worked mm. out really, really, really well. So Yeah, it was. Um, but, the, but, you know, there, there was a little bit of uh, make it up on the day, but a, a good probably 80, 90% of it wasn't. It was very well thought out when we did our tech recce's. And uh, sorry, and mind you, uh, Mike, when we when I went for my first initial recce throughout Cambodia, uh, we were f- discovering these new locations. So when I came back, I wrote these, I changed the script to suit our environment is probably the short answer. So I go, well, that's right. look at that vine, you know, where the kids are climbing up that vine up under that rock. Mm-hmm. I go, well, you know, I looked at it and my son's climbed up it and I've had to climb up and I went, this is cool. And you can see that a thousand villagers have been climbing this damn vine for, for years, right? So I knew it was strong enough. It was not like it was going to fall out of the sky. They, yeah. Those vines just don't come down out of the, out of the sky. So, uh, so yeah, I come back and I wrote that vine into the damn script because I thought it was it was way easier than climbing a little cliff face, you know. Yeah, no, and it was original, which was nice. Um, Jason, I'd be interested to have you guys have a bit of a discussion about the the lighting and the cinematography because that was the second thing that really just sort of stunned me when I was watching the making of is the complete absence of the usual uh, gaffer and grip stuff that Mark was working with. And, and it, I mean, it just didn't look it. And I guess, you know, part of that is camera tech. But, um, I mean, to your eye, like it, it just didn't seem to suffer from not having a grab and give it a mic. To me, it looked, you know, like as if you did have those uh, those professionals on set. But what did you think, Jason? Yeah, I mean, well, your your natural gaffer is the, the dapple of the leaves, right? You just find the nice spots. I mean, I'm making consumptions here. Mark can clarify. But, you know, you're in the forest, so you can find, you know, locations, you know, a galore that, you know, could control your light for you based on the day, day or time you're shooting. Um, but, I mean, that's... That's sort of the beauty of it, I think, is it feels a like it feels real because it is real. You're not like creating this super false, um, super highly produced look, which is fine for some movies. But in this case, you have this down and dirty run and gun movie of these people, you know, being chased through the forest. It needs to feel kind of gritty and you want to see the dirt on them and and what have you. Um, But then when you get to like when the guys are sitting in the room before the, before they get blown up, you know, uh, in the, in the town, you know, you're, you're, uh, 
your the lighting in there feels natural as well, even though you'd assume that was a more traditionally lit, you know, Mark can speak to that. But, you know, when David and the other guys are sitting in the, the kind of dirty control room, uh, you know, have trying to make everything work and, you know, there's nice shadows on the wall and color and it feels like you texture on the walls and you kind of get the, the vibe of it. But my guess is that wasn't overly lit either. Um, so just I, I personally like the naturalistic vibe. And I know one of the things I appreciate about Mark is while we all geek out about lenses and and the perfect, you know, people do, you know, months of lens tests, you know, and have lenses made and stuff for features, which is awesome. And I would kill to do that because it's super fun. Uh, you can you can shoot with any lens really uh, within reason uh of any dollar amount and get a quality image based on your camera and your composition, which is really the key, you know, to get, to get your, get your job done. And Mark can talk more to that, but you know, when you're, when you're in the middle of the jungle, I don't think you really want to have, you know, $20,000 lens kit with you. You know I mean? It just doesn't make sense. Um, in this case. Mm. No, you did right. Well, yeah, I, I I was being a bit safe with my gear because I knew we were going to be running around in the jungle, in the mud and caves. And, you know, these things break and they always break. I mean, it just, but I just didn't feel like taking my very expensive lenses into that environment for two months running around in the jungle in the rain and the mud. So, yeah, we did. And the other thing too is I, I did want the operators to pull their own focus. Uh, because we were moving quite quickly through a lot of locations. And you know yourself, the bigger the crew, the less locations you can have, right? Because yeah. to, to, to do a company move with 100 people or 200 people, it's, you, just, you just blow days away, right? So, Right. What was your max crew count on like your, on like in the jungle days, not like in the village days, but when you were doing robots in the jungle what was the max uh, in in, in the jungle and i'm not talking about the drivers that drive us up to the jungle or the or the yeah, guy cooking lunch but, down the end of the street um, yeah but actors and actors camera people yeah, crew maybe, that were actively working maybe 12 15 so yeah. can i just jump in and say like i just don't want to leave this hanging without clarifying it right so firstly what lenses were you using okay um <laughs> Yeah, I wanted. <laughs> I went to Stills Glass because I know Stills Glass resolve better than most cinema glass lenses. It's just it's just the way it is, right? And even though like the Takinas of the world and the Sigmas and they, and they make out this as a cinema lens, the re reality is those the glass out of those lenses are predominantly from Stills thinking, um, and they they just change the housings a bit so they don't breathe and all that sort of stuff. So what so thinking that I, I literally bought a few sets of these little cheap plastic uh, lenses that I found on the internet called uh, uh, Rok Rokinons, Rokinons or Samsungs or something. You know, they were just a plastic $500 lens. or not even that, I think, a $300 plastic lens. They're obviously glass optics. And and I thought, well, these would be great because we, well, I put them up, we did tests, and you know, and... And I went, shit, these are actually sharper than than my Zeiss 
super speeds. These are sharper than the ultra primes. These are sharp. You know, these are as sharp as a set of master primes. And I looked at them, and then we looked at flares and everything. Okay, we so you can see the the different characteristics they have. But at the end of the day, they were clean, sharp, and and had good contrast. They did have slight color changes between all the different lenses, but fuck, everything goes through a grade anyway. So I wasn't worried about. It. It's not like we're in film land where your lenses had to be all color correct. You know, we weren't in film world anymore. We're in digital world. So do color corrections of a slight green tinge. You know, can be fixed in in two seconds. So, so you've got uh, oh, stills well, lenses on your cameras. Yeah, yeah. I put stills lenses on them. Well, again, because they were cheap, we didn't want to damage our expensive lenses. Yeah. So there was there was one uh, agenda there. The other thing too was um, because they're very short throw on the focus, the the operators could pull focus like they could do a big long zoom very quickly. So in a, like a quarter of a turn, they could. Uh, you would have noticed there was one scene there where Bowler, the bad guy, was in an alleyway about to kill that girl. There's a massive focus pull from him straight to her up close, like one foot away. And, it's you know, we were doing focus pulls like, like nothing else. And that was just the operator wedged in the corner in a corner in a grimy little stairs with an actor in a dirty little alleyway. For me, you know, for us to shoot that with a focus puller, with his little radio, tele, you know, with his is low latency teradek hanging off cameras and all that 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 fucking we would have just given up you know because the day would have been over but but, but, but having four but did cameras, you get guys, your camera operators being ex news guys or something because like most <laughs> no but i'm serious here right like pulling focus is like really hard and ah, and there's a not. reason why they've got big no there is there's a reason why they've got a big throw on those things is because you know you need precision and if you overshoot a little bit you've lost the shot and I'm 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 impressed, but I'm just kind of stunned that you were just your guys were managing to pull all that off. Well, the thing is, it's um, yeah, we we did have two young guys on there, which were pulling focus better than myself and another guy that you know was it was an ACS president at the time. Um, you know, he, end of the day, we were looking at these young kids going, "Wow, these kids are pulling focus, amazing!" You know, I mean, like because we, we, I had my son on one camera and, and another young guy. Uh, but they were so used to doing that all the time, day in, day out, was cracking focus really quickly. And we had a and the and the movie was full of focus pulls, you know, bet- between characters, dialogue, all that sort of stuff it was loaded yeah. full of it. And that was getting smacked on perfect. And the other thing too is, if if we did drop out of that focus, which was rare. I had four other cameras I could pick up angles from, so and it was continuity perfect. So I go, oh shit, he's dropped out of focus there for a tiny bit. Let's cut back to this guy and his reaction, or another angle of those three people talking, which is pinch up. So we we had plenty of scapegoats if there was a shot that was out of focus. Um, but at the same time, it's um, we didn't, and, and we shot wide open everywhere. It was on the, a lot of those little zoom lenses we had with. A lot of these little Canon zoom lenses. We bought a whole bunch of these twenty four seventies, whole bunch of seventy to two hundred Canon zoom lenses, um, and you know, and they broke. Someone their camera fell over and snapped one of them off. That and everyone's panicking. You know, just go and get another one, right? There's there's two there. Like just go, go and get another one. So no, there's no stress, right? And they look around the corner. You chuck the lens in the rubbish bin and you keep moving. And but the reality is, it doesn't show on the screen. And I, I know it doesn't because a very I'm not even going to drop his name. He'll be so embarrassed. But I've got a very big DP friend. He's he's been nominated for Academy Awards, the whole box and dice. 
And when he saw the movie, he quickly said, he goes, fuck, he goes, that looks beautiful. He goes, what lenses did you use? And I told him, he just slapped his head. Right, he's like, fuck, <laughs> Tori, you're just making a mockery of everything that is what we do, right? I said, no, I'm not. He goes, well, who, well, you know, the lighting looks fucking incredible. Who lit it? And I said, oh, we didn't have any lighting. It's all natural. Another fucking head slap, right, because he's a big lighting guy. But at the end of the day, it is about well-thought-out composition, like what Jason said. you really got to think about your composition. The other thing, too, is in my recce's, I knew where the sun was coming up and where it was landing. So I configured all of my shoot days with my first AD. I'm going to go, I want to shoot this scene here because we're going to be backlit most of it, right? And uh, we didn't even use bounce boards or anything. Like, we literally used pure natural light. There was no cutters, no light, because I knew I could do a lot of shaping in post when we were grading as well. Um, so is that partly, but, but is that really partly to, because you had really good dynamic range up your sleeve? Like, because yes, like, honestly, yes. you'd normally have clipped out if you were trying to do the, in the shadow exposure and then the sun was coming through the trees, you'd just clip it out in the old days and it wouldn't, wouldn't work. But you were kind of relying on the fact that while the lenses were cheap, the back ends of cameras had good dynamic range. Yeah. Well, I mean, you just, you can't not go for dynamic range on these cameras. You know, I, I think... You know, if you if if you've got to have a camera that's shooting sixteen stops above to get ed, enough range, you know, because I noticed when because we had the prototyped helium with us at the time, um, and the other four cameras were dragons. So with the helium came in, and I go, oh wow, this thing's literally got another two stops up its sleeve, right? So in high contrast situations, that camera became our high contrast camera. The others were more you know, picking up around the edges. When we got into the caves, all those other cameras become almost useless, you know, but the helium gave us that extra two stops in the caves. And we were using minimal light in those caves because I didn't want it to look Hollywood. I didn't want it to look like we lit anything. It had to look rich and real. But and you know how you do that? By not lighting anything. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, but when that guy I'm turns alive, up... We did have a couple of LEDs that did fill Yeah, but when that guy yeah, turns up that has the scarring across his face in the... In the cave, which, by the way, was slightly incongruous because I was like, where is this guy going from? Is this going to be a big plot point later? And I was like, no. oh, he's just gone. But that guy, notwithstanding the fact that it was kind of interesting in this plot, I mean, how was he lit? Because he, he's really, like, that's interesting portrait photography almost because he's such an interesting face at that point. Yeah, well, I just used the LED torch that I gave the actors and I said, just lift it up. You're going to light the guy with your torch. So... You know, this guy comes around and, and, and the actor lifts the torch up and literally shines it straight in his face and that's how he got lit. So it's it's a practical prop lighting, lighting his face? Yes. If I didn't know you, I'd think you were just lying. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, and then no, the, the other one. No, no, I wanna... we, like I said, we did have a couple of LED lights that we bought at the local markets for like $2.50, you know. So, and, so we did use lights but very... Very rare. Like in the, in the cave, we might. Well, it was a bit dark down this hole, and I just wanted a little bit of light to come through, as if there was a hole in the wall. So we'd run a little bit of the light through there and a little bit of fill. But everywhere else had no lighting because the way I chose the, um, you know, the the technicians, you know, they sat at a table in front of a window, so we had natural soft light filling in right. through a source that was only, you know, a light. It was only like a little two meter hole. 
that would constantly give us soft light all day. And then yeah, I had practical been, lights we, and lamps everywhere. Which I we've knew all been on sets where I've been on sets where I walked up and I said, "This is a great location because look at all these great windows." And the first thing the DP did is get black plastic up <laughs> and cover all the windows, <laughs> and then wheel in a bunch of area lights. And, yeah, yeah. and I was like, what? <laughs> and, and to replicate exactly what was there naturally, yeah. Yeah. But control. Well, that's what I wanted. <laughs> Go on. Right. Controlled, of course. Yeah. Uh, but that's the thing I want to so, – so based on what I initially said, I want to come back to that and, and reiterate that while there – uh, which I already knew, but as Mark explained, while you can say that there was a – run and gun nature to the using lighting using you know what i mean look a, a 7200 is not considered cheap glass but it's considered cheap glass in in a you know comparison to master primes or some other quote cinema lenses right so but the point is is all of that all of the stuff about being run and gun using natural light and all that stuff the reason it all works is for what mark said is planning you didn't just show up and go, oh, there's the sun. Everyone look to the right. Like you took the time to do the rec, the recce and then plan for the using the natural light, which is obviously where the expertise comes in. Because if you just rolled up on that and you were like, cool, we're going to do an available light movie, you know, that's not, it's not always how it comes out. Well, that scene in the village, for instance, you know, where the, all those guys came in, uh, you know, the, uh, the drug uh, cartel yeah, yeah, type that, thing. They came with yeah, their yeah. guns and there was that big group of people and, like, you know, we got 20 actors standing there, you know, shooting the breeze. So that there became quite tough because that was a, a scene that literally took all day to shoot. And you go, well, why? why reason why it took all day to shoot was because it was, you, we were picking up so many different actors with so many different lenses. But what I noticed... About 10 o'clock, all my lighting changed, and by 2 o'clock, it was completely the other direction. So from a continuity perspective, I'm going, hang on, these people came from that direction there two minutes earlier, and now two minutes later on the film, they're all backlit, they're all backlit, or frontlit, where they were backlit two minutes earlier, right? And mm -hmm. I thought, screw this, I'm not going to, um, I can't live with it myself personally. So I said to the first AD, we're going to have to come back and shoot the, late, the latter half of the scene tomorrow. So we've got that same light that we had the day before, the same light mm -hmm. direction, because it was just killing me. I, I'm a bit of a continuity junkie on, on set. I just and Another reason why I shoot multiple cameras, you can just shoot around it so many times. You know, mm -hmm. guys with cigarettes in their mouth, you know, one shot, they've fucking <laughs> burnt out, the other one they're brand new. Yeah. I just didn't want any of that rubbish, you know what I mean? So, but so, the same with, with light coming in a certain area. I just wanted to make sure we shot within a, a time frame that would not kill us or change lighting. Well, yeah. let's be realistic. That's that's what normal people do. Just shoot right? it out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no, well, no, no. They they plan and say we can only do this half of this scene this day, and we'll have to do the other half the next day because we if we're using available light, we only have so many hours to do this yeah. direction. Yeah. Right? So, Unless you want to change your blocking for them to slowly West Side Story, yeah. you know, and dance dance around the other direction. Yeah, right. But you know what I mean? But the other thing that normal people in adverted commas do is they do uh, <laughs> LiDAR scans, HDRs, uh, gray balls, mirror balls, um, you know, high dynamic range captures of environments so that all the CG will sit in really 
properly? And I know the answer to this, but of course, <laughs> on a shot where I've got a robot coming, th I'm just going to discuss, that, like there's a bunch of these shots, but let's imagine we're talking about a shot where you've got a robot coming towards us along a path. We can okay. see him full height and he's going through, I say he, but you know, going through uh, kind of a bit of um, vegetation and clearly in a forest environment. You just didn't provide your CG team with all of that stuff. You didn't have scanned grounds, LIDARs, gray balls, HDRs. He's shaking his head. Did you? No, How the nothing. hell is that possible? Well, <laughs> look, Mike, you've been around this effects world long enough to know that um, you don't really need them for 90% of what you do, right? And a lot of the people on set, you know, there's a lot of people on set doing a lot of gathering of information that a lot of artists never even go to or look at or use. It's true. I've seen it. I've got a lot of friends of post houses. I do a lot of posts myself, as you know. I Most times I just look at it and go, well, that looks like a 40 mil lens. And when you do your, uh, you know, you, 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 you run your track, you know, just run Mocha on it. And the Mocha software will come back and go, oh, that's a 43 mil lens. And you go, good. It's worked it out, right? It's worked it out through all your depth of all your tree leaves and all that sort of stuff. So half the time all this data that people take on set and all that stuff is not really needed. And from a HDR perspective, in the forest it's quite easy. Once you've got a forest style HDR that's quite generic, you know, the only thing that changes in that HDR is a light direction and colour. But the dapple of leaves are like the same in every forest you go to. And so just, to, like just to jump in here, not yeah. when you've got one, you can reuse it. You didn't even start with one. You just bought one off the internet, didn't you? Yeah, no, it was free. We found a free one on the internet. Downloaded a free HDR off the net. No, no, well, we, no, I shot some HDRs on set. I, I just, we put a, like 16 mil on, a, on one of the red cameras and we just spun around in circles and, and just, we, we could make our domes. We had the information there that we did it, but we didn't do it everywhere because I started looking at the HDRs that I, we started creating. I went, oh, fuck, they all look the same. It's just a different tree, right? So, um, so, but we had, you know, one's in shade, one's not in shade. You know, when the sun came in, the sun went out. So what we noticed is when we were lighting, um, you know, the robots, that, that single one HDR, you just had to move it around, obviously, a little bit. And go, okay, that's the general light direction. The dapple was done, obviously, just through gobos, um, obviously, through the you know, when you're doing your 3D with your single light source. So you put your HDR down and you put your own sun in there and next thing you've got your light direction exactly the way you want it because the actor that's there in the foreground another reason why I, I put those black big circles and white bands on the sure if you saw any of those on-set photos, but I put really big black circles and white circles and squares all over them. Now, that wasn't for the artist that uses tracking data. That was purely used for a white point and a black point. And that's the most, the two most important things when you're doing your composite, is that black and white point. You know, color is this color. You just, you just, you know, if there's a little bit of green tinge in the white, you know that's going to fall onto your model. If you know there's a bit of blue tinge in the blacks or whatever. All you're doing is doing match noise grain, and, and but your whites and blacks are everything. So I just cover that dude with that. Um, and markers, I noticed in those really shots, just, though, I noticed yeah. those shots where they're walking towards us that there are, were nearly always, um, and I had to make myself look, but kind of like subtle blades of grass that the robots were behind. So did you add digital grass or did you have someone who was a friend of yours in some far <laughs> off foreign place doing roto on blades of grass? No, no, we just put the grass back in. 
So we just, you know, just again, it's, it's just a blade of grass. It's not hard to find blades of grass on the internet. Or there might be the original blade of grass. Like you would have noticed, like he was walking around, and there's a few things that he's standing on, and they're folding over, and yeah. you know, like pressure. And I go, well, the actor really did that for real. So yeah, we'll just it's only eight frames. I mean, just right over that piece of grass and put it back in. And we did that ourselves because from a compositing point of view, this guy Ray L. T. and myself, uh, we. Well, he did, he did a brunt of the compositing, but I, I sort of set these early looks right up front. I go from a compositing point of view, here's a couple of hero shots. I want it to look exactly like this. this that was my worst-case scenario. I didn't want it to look like a CG robot in the story. But, that, again, that goes back to your robot too. You've got to build a killer model for that to even work, you know. Kind of handy that the only big difference between 1, 2, 3, and 4 was the 1, 2, 3, and 4 stenciled on their backs though, right? Like, yeah, well, they were quite... a bit obvious. You notice I did make them a little bit hard to read because I wanted the audience to get a little bit lost. I want, yeah. I wanted the audience to go, "Fuck, hang on, is that number two? Is that number three? Or fuck, you know, I wanted them to have a little bit of that. that I needed their brains to turn on. Like my 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 sister was lost. She watched the movie and she's like, "Oh, is that number two or number three? And my my mother would go, "That's number three. Number two is already dead." You know, like she would lecture her. <laughs> And um, but it was great that it got people thinking. And we're like, it, like for instance, on that movie Chappie, you know, yeah. they they obnoxiously, oh, let's put the red arm on this fucking robot, or you know, like yeah. on going, oh, seriously, you're treating all the viewers as idiots. You know what I mean? Like they literally had to make this robot look different than the other robots. And I, I thought that, again, that's just the executives coming in. You know, they're like, oh, so I think you, we need to shoot this scene where you put a different coloured arm on a robot, you know. Otherwise, we won't think, know it's I mean, chappy. <laughs> I mean, I would I would say to, to what Mark was saying, or Mike was saying, the things that really sold it for me from a comp perspective is that you have real people walking through trees and then you put the robot in and there's a robot, a CG element moving a real branch, mm. right? It's not a CG branch. And that just that alone, mixing that, uh, sells it visually outside of the composite. Um, yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I made a point. I knew that I couldn't do that a lot because they become expensive shots, right? As you yeah. know. And, and there's not one time I had that. Oh, sorry. There's only two shots in there where I had the robot running through trees. I knew, okay, I really like that shot. I really like it through there. Fuck it, we're just going to have to cut all those trees out, which isn't hard, right? In in Photoshop, you just cut them out and just track them back in. It's not that hard. It's a, it's it's simpler than I thought. Once we were doing the comp, I went, eh, fucking easy. You know, no, not a worry. But the, but the hard bit was is all the particulate, you know, because the dust that the actor mm -hmm. kicked up and all that, yeah. those yeah. fragments, a little bit of uh, lens flare trying to, re, you know, because one thing about... Um, you know, shooting like that, you had to be. I had to really teach these these operators about lens flare. Okay, look, if you're shooting a robot and there's lens flare, we're fucked. You know, I mean, it causes a nightmare of myriad of problems. Um, so you got to manage your, your lens flares. Don't let them spill all over our active because that means when we cut him out of port, we've got to try and reapply it. So you know, once, but it was pretty easy to once these guys got the hang of it. You know, I just go, well, let's put a matte box on that lens just for that shot, or put your hand over it. Or something stop it um, trees for instance 
Yeah. So, so the robots obviously were CG. How many of those other things, like planes, you know, and stuff, were CG? And how many of those shots of like Washington and New York were stock footage? Uh, the, the one Washington, the first Washington shot of Congress, you know, it's the aerial shot yep. that was stock. Everything else. Oh, sorry. And there was a shot. And the Pentagon of, shot. The Pentagon was stock, and the and there was a, some uh, time lapse cloud shots over some hills. So there's about four or five shots that were stocked. The rest were everything we shot. So everything in New, New York, York we shot, yeah. Yeah. And then the planes, like the uh, ones that the guys are jumping, or the BR-1 for are jumping out of, that was all CG? Yeah, that's all CG, CG yeah. yeah. So all the, yeah, all the planes are CG. And we did. I did buy some stock of some CG planes, but for some reason they look, uh, they look, fake i don't know i was looking at them going they look like cg planes but they weren't they were actually look and so i thought well let's do it so we just you know we just shot we just uh recreated our plane put it over the top of those ones and so we used those you know the, like the plane flying overhead we used real footage of real guys jumping out and we'd ask our animators just to match frame or match track these guys jumping out of a plane for real so then we got you know we got real flight and real distance and real separation when we're all the, so you used a so you used a real a real like halo jump kind of yeah. uh, stock footage shot and then replaced the robots as and the, the guys and the plane. Yeah. Oh no, everything CG we plane. replaced everything. We just used their animation. We just used their movement. Oh okay, the reference. Right, right, right. So we so the environment and everything in the the clouds and everything everything it was a full CG shot. Yeah. But you used everything as reference. Well, there was another shot for, too, you know, where the plane's flying a big wide shot where it flies past the camera like, and just shoots off into yeah. those beautiful clouds with the rays of light. That was shot with my iPhone. Um, I was flying somewhere on a job years ago and I remember shooting it out the window with my phone. But that was literally on a phone. That, that shot was shot from the phone and we just stripped the, the plane into that. <laughs> no one could tell. Like we watched it in the IMAX yeah, and it, it looked fucking fantastic, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's 4K, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, uh, so, Mike's so, no environment. Right? <laughs> yeah, I am shaking my head. There are no, there are no <laughs> environment work, basically, but there's quite a lot of uh, stuff to sell stuff in, which, in the end of the day, comes down to somebody having an eye. And I guess the thing that is terrific about what you did is that you're the auteur of the entire process, right? You're a generalist in a world of specialists, in that, you know, you were writing it and you were directing it. Obviously, you had a team with you on set when you were filming it, but nevertheless, you were still there right from, you know, way to go, which does give you this unified um, understanding. Assuming you can hold it all in your head and you're not, you know, uh, getting overwhelmed, it is a remarkably productive way to work because you don't have to be telling somebody else everything all the time, right? Because you know what you want. Yeah. And, you know, you've got to think of the project as a whole. It um, it was designed really as a calling card for me. So I, I could break a lot of rules. I could do lots of things. Uh, but, that's, but really it was... Has it worked? It was, Have you oh, had a yeah, good reaction? Yeah. Oh, massive. It's lots going on. Jason probably knows more than he should. But, there's <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, movies coming out of, the, out of the pipe work. There's a lot of producers have acknowledged that because... The big thing for a lot of producers and sales companies and distributors globally is there is a huge shortage of directors, believe it or not, like good directors. So to position yourself in there, because there's a lot of content still needs to be made and will be made, 
But this, the, the biggest problem now is the movie industry is devalued all by itself. It's screwed itself up. It's devalued the what a movie's worth now. Like a, a movie to the consumer is only worth five bucks to the consumer. But that same consumer are quite happy to spend $200 on a training video that costs some guy, you know, a hundred bucks to make where a movie costs several million dollars to make and people only want to pay $5 for that film or steal it. So what's happening now is now I'm going through, I'm, we've, we've done a self-distribution thing and I can really see these big gaping holes in the sales side of a movie. And movies now, you know, like the Blumhouse model, for instance, is trying to make a good movie for $5 million because they know they're going to make 20 movies or 25 movies that year as on, on, as a slate of films for Universal. Um, one may do well. The rest are just going to be burners, right? So so it's, it's about that recoupment on that film. And what I wanted to position myself was I want the world of producers out there to go, well, look, here's Toy here. He could make that 20, 30, $50 million movie for, for 10 million bucks, you know what I mean? Or $5 million. Um, so all of a sudden, it, their chances of recouping are far greater. And that's what this movie was designed for, for me, as well as, you know, to prove to everyone we can actually make a film. I, I've got to say, Mark, and, and you know, like I mean this with uh, all sincerity, it feels like that old um, adage in the art world uh, where somebody came up to Pablo Picasso at lunch and said, hey, can you just draw me something? And mm. so he draws the wine glass in a Cubist style and she reaches down to take it and, and he says, oh, that'll be $10,000, to which she says, but it only took you a few minutes. And he says, madam, it took me a lifetime to know how to do that. Yes. And I kind of feel like as, as, as jovial and Australian as you are about dismissively saying this is so easy kind of thing, it, it's <laughs> because you built it on the back of like, you know, years of learning the hard way and learning through, through you know, tears almost or to get what you wanted it took this and you know you've trained yourself up in so many disciplines so so while it might be really easy to turn up on set and say oh yeah i did this and this you still have to know to turn up on set to do this this and this and not to yeah. do the other thing yeah there's a, there's obviously a lot of practice and you know that's why i've always you know like your brain uh mike because you're you you're very fucking like you're, you're you're the brain, right? You're the brain. You know all this stuff. You know you know lots about everything. And um, I, I'm probably where, where you're you're the um, the professor, right? I'm I'm probably more the hands-on guy. So I wish I had more of your brain. You're probably going well. I wish I was a bit more practical, like you. But but really, there's that there's that middle ground of having that bunch of knowledge of how to do this stuff from a technical perspective and how to do it from a practical perspective. And, uh, I, you know, I, I'm always learning and I know, you know, cause, and you've been part of that. You've been, you've always, I always watch your, you know, your PhD shows and FX PhD shows. And I always, I'm, I'm always studying something like every compositing program that's ever been invented. I've learned because I want to know what's going to be that, that right compositing program for us for this, for a particular job. Like I have started a little bit on nuke on our movie, but we finished it all on after effects because we were finding that we were getting far more productivity from After Effects. Uh, you know, I like that stupid program Motion and Apple, you know, I was just going, well, geez, this thing is real time. Why, why can't someone make 
use the back end of motion and make the ultimate compositing machine because it's using all the GPUs in the machine. It's real time, it's fluid. You can just comp in real time. I mean, you just playback's all is fluid and beautiful, but the tools in motion are shit. So what I've done, I've gone through and I've learned Fusion and, and Flame and everything. So I've got, I've got through all of these tools. I go, okay, now I know what I, I use Flame for keying because I think it's got the best color warper and still to this day, but everything, all the rest of it's just a slow moving dog, right? Where like After Effects has its issues as well, you know, especially with layers. I mean, I think node, node working in nodes is fucking way better, you know? Well, you know, you can you can do things a lot easier. But if, if there's no great compositing program out there, but I like to try and use all of them and use them for their, their specialties, you know, for clean-up work, tracking, all sorts of stuff. But having all that knowledge and doing it all the time has helped me save a ton of money. And as, and as well, I hire generalists, a lot of generalists, rather than focused people like, uh, that Raul that, that helped us, I, he, I'll call him the, the effects supervisor, which he was, and he managed the whole back of the job while I was off doing TV ads. But him and I worked together on comps and we set this standard that he knew he had to maintain. And him and I together, we literally composited this whole movie between us, just two guys with over 2,000 shots. You know, But, like but in the same way that you were you were facilitated by having dynamic range, you were mm. enormously facilitated by having like Frame.io being able to provide you with this kind of like global backbone that you could oh. sort of transfer shots yeah. around and do things on. Um, like yeah. there's a lot of tech there that really, that like you just couldn't have pulled this off maybe 25, oh, okay, I'm going to say 15 years ago, right? Like you needed... Because to do the things you were doing, like you were doing reviews on location on another project because you had that ability to use things like Frame.io and stuff that have been so so influential. Look, Frame.io, was, I, I'd met actually Emery through Jason many years ago uh, when he was bashing around there trying to write code and dick around in the back of Jason's office. Remember that? Yeah, well, it was Emery's office that I was dicking around the back of his office. Oh, was it that way? Okay, so it was Emery's office. <laughs> well, sort yeah. of. I mean, we were partners in the yeah. in the space, sort of. But yeah, yeah, but yeah, I remember when he he he, he, was, he had a color he had a you know a color and finishing house and you that's know, right. Yeah, just was yeah. like I, I gotta I gotta make something better for myself, and it turned <laughs> into something better for everybody. Yeah, well, for, when he showed me that program before, you know, fuck, don't how many years ago that was now, but he showed me Frame My Own. That I knew that was going to come on board. I don't use it a ton for my advertising work because when you give, um, you know, the the creative director or the client the tools to write all over your stuff, mate, it it comes back like the Bible, like there's like a thousand fix-ups, right? <laughs> so I'm very scared of using it to its full glory with some of my clients and other clients. I'm quite happy to share Frame.io with, but. For our movie, for instance, Frame.io was another integral part of our budgeting. And that means, you know, with, with doing posts with companies around the world for so many years, I know who the really cool rotoscope guys are. I know who the good cleanup guys are. I know who the, you know, the good tracking guys are, all the animators, and they're all spread all over the place. And whether it's a company or an individual, that's where that Frame.io really stepped up. So we use Frame.io like a, a virtual post house. 
yeah. in a sense. So everything just because yeah, you, you put your back. team together. This was not. We should have said this earlier on, right? Mm. You didn't have a post house. You basically handpicked team members and companies for different jobs and built up yeah. a total composite. Hey, Jason, listening to this, like, what's your perspective? Because you're a bit like Mark in many respects, right? Like, you've got a lot of views on the tech. If you were starting on your same sort of path of doing a feature, whether it's self-funded or somebody gives you the the cash, but not not a mega studio film, mm-hmm. like, are there lessons here that – is this already where you're at or are you taking – I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's one of the reasons we get along so well is we have we think similarly. Neither of us want to be told what to do by anybody, uh, and and my brother and I are always looking for ways. I mean, look over the years, you know, that's why we've you know bought gear and done other things. So the the more we have, the less we have to beg, borrow, and steal for other from from other people. Even though even though you know partnerships are great. It's nice to be able to say, I don't have to ask anybody for this large chunk of what I'm doing. And much like Mark, uh, I've even if I haven't learned a program, I've spent years, probably the last 20 years, watching tutorials for software I'll never even use or buy. But so I understand what all the software does so that when I communicate to an artist or I communicate to somebody, not only can I speak their language and be able to communicate effectively about how to do what I want them to do with the software. I also know when they're trying to rip me off and tell me something that can't be done or, or that it's going to take them 10 hours to do something. When I know from a workflow perspective, it only takes an hour to do that thing. Um, even if I can't physically push the buttons, I understand from a very detailed perspective, how the application or the process works. So, so, I, you know, I think watching what Mark was doing over the past few years and my brother and I working towards the same goal, maybe with a different budget, but the, 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 the outcome is the same, you know, doing something we want to do with a knowledge base that we've gained over, you know, uh, 20 plus years of doing what we do, um, and being able to to be creative with the solutions and the approach. Um, not that other people don't do that. I'm just saying for us, um, I think, you know, and of course, like Mark said, I mean, we're always learning. I'm, I learned from Mark, you know, every time I talk to him, he's always talking about something, you know, that he's doing. And I'm like, Oh, that makes sense. You know, whatever we, we bullshit back and forth, um, about a lot of stuff. And I mean, my brother and I are are planning on making at least one feature this year, um, you know, and and to to the tech point, you know, um, my brother and I are involved in a in a new virtual production stage here in in the city. And that is now a resource I have at my disposal that that is not you know something that I would normally not be able to afford or, um, you know, have access to or learn how to use. But because I'm a now a partner in this venture, um, I have the ability to go learn how to use this new tool at my disposal and use it for a fraction of the price of it might cost somebody else. Uh, and all of a sudden, I have another tool in my toolkit. When or how I use it is dependent on the project, but it's just adding this 
knowledge base and this this access to to technology that you know i don't know it's just uh something we're really excited about so we've run out of time but it has been absolutely brilliant uh mark having you here and uh thanks jason for uh, gracing us both as commentator and as actor um just yeah. just out of interest how how was you know was there I just how was the direction was it like more better faster like uh what was the you know? uh, no the the direction was was stop acting like a director mark saying to me stop like be an actor because i would stop myself in the middle of a take and be like hold on i could do it better he's like no that's that's i'm gonna tell you <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what happened yeah, yeah. He, he was ex- so, he was directing himself i go fucking stop yeah, that it was, <laughs> Yeah. I'm like, all right, all right, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Well, Although I will say, I will say that my execution, the 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 shot of me walking in and shooting Mike in the kitchen was the first take. Okay. Well, when they have, you know, uh lethal hoodie in a built up area at the Oscars, I think you're a shoe in because uh it was a, yeah. a, a, an outstanding performance. And uh Mark, thank you and congratulations on how well the film has gone. I know it's gone very well in terms of like finding an audience and i'm so glad to hear it's also gone well in terms of you uh and future projects we're looking forward to uh to seeing this mate thanks yeah yeah i'll share those with you there's a couple coming up this year that are quite interesting and thank you guys for listening it's uh been uh, great if you're interested in uh some of these different shows that we're uh doing please let us know we'd uh, love to hear from you um matt apologizes that he couldn't be with us uh this week but uh he was uh tied up with something else so it was great to be able to uh have Mark instead, but uh, Matt will be back as uh, normal in our next episode. We've got a bunch of cool stuff coming up, including hopefully uh, an upcoming uh, VFX show on Discovery for all you Trek fans. But until then, I'm Mike Seymour. Thanks so much. Uh, Mark, uh, if people want to f- sort of find out about you and the, the, is there a website that they can go to? I think like it's, uh, you, you own Toya.com, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Is that the best place for them to go? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Toya.com. What about the movie? Oh, and the for the movie, oh, there's monstersofman.movie is the, is the other right. website, monstersofman.movie. With, with merch, I hear. Oh, look, I just, I thought, what the hell? There's so many people asking for T-shirts. I just I, I made up a T-shirt uh, sort of page, you know, you, did, with the, you order and they these guys print on demand. So, they're um, very cool. They're very cool hoodies and T-shirts. I, I totally endorse them. And, and Jason, where can people find you? Uh, com and everywhere the internet exists. Right. And are you doing, you know, any signings at Comic-Cons of uh, 10 by 8s or anything? Uh, uh, I'm waiting for my uh, my agent, Mark, to uh, okay. tell me where, where and when to be. Post-pandemic, I'm sure there'll be a run on autographs. <laughs> hey, hey, Jason, have you put your name in the, cre- in the credits on IMDb yet? Oh, I don't know. I thought you might have done oh, that. Oh, fuck it. Now, what, now, what am I... Just jump, jump your ass know. on there, mate. Put it in there. Yeah, Actor, I'll, I'll your, do it in your, there. Your IMDb I'll, credit. I'm going to make up a name for my character. And uh, as I said before in the show, uh, there is in fact a story that uh, Mark and, uh, gracefully gave us earlier over on FX Guide. So if you want to um, uh, go back, we published that story in uh, middle of December uh, before Christmas. Uh, so check that out at FX Guide, where of course you'll find me, Mike Seymour. And thank you so much again, guys, for being with us and listening. Until next time, see ya. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.